So good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Our text tonight is Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. So ask you to turn there in your Bibles. I believe it's page 128 or something like that in your pew Bibles. As you're turning there, a few thoughts. Um, one of my favorite subjects when I was in high school was history, not because, um, basically only because I had an engaging teacher. And I found his history more interesting and exciting than um, math and Spanish and all those other things. Um, and one of the things that I learned is, is that history is important so that the unfortunate and the evil events of the past are not repeated in the future. We all know the phrase, history repeats itself. Although we are right to look back on the horrible events that have taken place in the world and to work to prevent them from happening again in the future, usually history repeats itself in one form or another. This really isn't only true in, in world history, right, because ruthless leaders seem to easily and always garner a following and they create a path of massive destruction and devastation. But the same is true of, in the history of our very own lives where particular sin seems to always be easily accessible at a moment's notice. When I started writing this sermon, um, I was going to say that I haven't watched Dennis Me the Menace in a long time, but we watched it for movie night last night. Um, and I remembered um, from this movie, from when I watched it long ago, that in the movie Dennis, he was this continual thorn in the side of his neighbor, this thorn in the side of his neighbor, Mr. Wilson. And from time to time, he would snicker the words, oh, Mr. Wilson, and uh, to Mr. Wilson's disdain. Dennis would cause something unfortunate to happen next door, and you may remember the sound of Mr. Wilson yelling Dennis's name. Dennis! Put yourself in Mr. Wilson's shoes for a moment. What is he thinking? Dennis is at it again. He never learns. History is repeating itself, and he shakes his head with bitterness and disgust. In our text tonight, we will see that God's people are at it again. The rebellion continues against the leaders of God, and God himself, and it's continuing. However, we get a picture that may be hard to initially see that some new and unexpected culprits join in the rebellion, that there's been a character who's been there all along. And um, we will see that tonight in our text. What we'll see tonight is that, yes, the ones we expect to get it wrong continue to indeed get it wrong. History is repeating itself. But the ones that we expect to get it right get it wrong too. The rebellion against God continues, and no one is immune. Unbelieving hearts are on full display and they're all around. And through it all, God's amazing grace is highlighted and put on beautiful display. As we read the text, my guess is tonight that you'll respond in one of two different ways. The first is this, you'll hear it and you will think, I can relate to the Israelites. Unwanted sin continues to show up unexpectedly in my life and it seems to never go away. And what makes matters worse, a lot of my sin is on public display, and everyone knows it, and everyone can see it, and everyone knows about it. You feel the guilt, and you feel the shame of your own sin, and your sinning, and you say this, I know that my sin has consequences, and sometimes very serious ones indeed, and I feel those consequences every day. If this is your response, God has something for you tonight that you need to hear. The second response goes like this. You'll hear the text tonight as we read it, and you'll think, how could the Israelites be so stupid? How could they have not learned to be obedient to God by now after everything that he has done for them? And you will shake your head like Mr. Wilson in bitterness and in disgust. And if that's your response, God has something for you tonight as well. The reality is this, my friends. This passage gives us a picture 
of the saving, redeeming, and sustaining grace that can only be found in the one true rock from whom waters of eternal life abundantly and freely flow, Jesus Christ himself. So would you pray with me, and then we'll read our text. Father in heaven, we know that we need your spirit um, to see who you are and to see your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes of faith tonight to, to see your word and to not just read it, but to understand it, that it would pierce our hearts, that it would give us a greater love for you, Lord, that you would show us um, your great love for us, your wayward and grumbling people. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So our text tonight is Numbers 20, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, they came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there, and she was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, should we bring water from you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight I want to break up our text into three sections. The rebellion continues with the usual suspects. The rebellion continues with two new arrivals and a guest appearance of someone who's been there all along. So first, the usual suspects, the Israelites. As you've heard, the book of Numbers can be described with one word, really, and it's grumble. If you had to describe it in three words, grumble, grumble, grumble. Five, grumble, 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 grumble. You get the picture. God's people are grumbling. Over and over again, God's people, they want to return to their misperceived comfort that they once had in the land of Egypt, where they lived as slaves, and returned there, where they too grumbled when they cried out in their oppression for God and for deliverance. And here's the thing. It's been 37 years since the whole fiasco went down, where spies were sent to Canaan to survey the promised land, and only two, Joshua and Caleb, offered a good report of the land, and the ten others had a bad report. And due to the quarreling that persisted after the unfavorable report from the ten spies, you may remember the sentence that was issued by the Lord. God's anger burned against the Israelites for their failure to believe in him in spite of all of the signs and all of the things that he had done for them and fighting for them. And God relented from the most serious consequence, which he said he was thinking about disinheriting God, this covenant-breaking community. 
But Moses fell on his face and he interceded for God's people. And the verdict was this, every person 20 years or older above will die in the wilderness over the next 40 years, minus Joshua and Caleb and their families. And for the past 37 years, all of those Israelites have been dying in the wilderness. Their conquest, the conquest of the promised land is close, and the group is going to begin moving towards the Jordan River. But now the people find themselves with a problem. They enter the wilderness of Zin, and there's no water. A somewhat serious problem, but as they have seen God's unprecedented provision over and over again in the past and meeting their needs, they shouldn't have, this shouldn't have been as big of a worry as they made it out to be. But believing the lack of water is Moses and Aaron's fault, not surprisingly, they begin to blow the situation out of proportion. And they gather together again, they quarrel against their leaders, and somewhat surprisingly, they declare that they wish that they would have died with Korah and Dathan and Abraham when the Lord swallowed them alive by the earth and when they were burned up um, by, this, um, by this fire. The complaint continues, why have you, Moses, brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They believe that all that has happened to them is Moses' fault and not their own. The refrain continues, history is repeating itself. The Israelites were quick to forget how the Lord had provided for them day in and day out since they've left Egypt. That he had been with them, leading them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. How he provided them daily bread, bread from heaven, manna. They'd forgotten how in this very same situation, less than a year after crossing the Red Sea in the Exodus, they find themselves in the desert without water and they cried out to God. And surprisingly, um, they said the same thing to Moses. Why did you bring us here to kill us? And yet the Lord himself stood on the rock before Moses and the congregation. The Lord told Moses to strike the rock with his staff, which Moses did. And the Lord graciously provided the water from the rock that they desperately needed. Surely they should have known that nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's true that many, people were a part, uh, many of the people that were a part of the covenant community in the wilderness, they had not experienced saving faith. You can go and read 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and then the writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 3 says the same thing in a more direct fashion. Not everyone on this journey in the wilderness had experienced saving faith. But some of those grumblers and some of those complainers who joined in with the crowd more times than they would have liked to admit did indeed have saving faith. They were sinners who joined together in the complaining party. They made mistakes. They participated in the gossip each day about their no-good leader, Moses. They were daily aware that the Lord was their God, but sin was continually present in their lives. I mean, think about it. For 37 years, everyone who was 20 years old or above was dying in the wilderness, Those who hadn't yet died, there was only three years left on the clock. Each day, people were dying in the wilderness because of their rebellion and their disobedience to God. Their sin was ever before them. The Israelites are kidding themselves if they believe that they actually deserved any of the graces of God, including this water that the Lord graciously gives them in this moment, on this day. In the words of one author, God had been abundantly gracious to an ungrateful people. Isn't the same true for you and me today? We really believe that we are entitled to the daily graces of God. I think Robert was right last week. Entitlement is the root of rebellion. Like the Israelites, we over-magnify our very real problems and our trials that we face each day throughout the course of our lives, and then we, we blame God or others for them, and then we demand that God grant us our desires and needs as if we really deserve his constant provision whenever we call out to him. And shockingly, When our needs are graciously met by God, we fail to give thanks and praise because we simply are getting what we have convinced ourselves that we deserve. 
We talk about grace so much that we really fail to believe that God's grace is amazing. God's abundant grace to a continually sinful people really is mind-boggling when you stop and you think about it. Simply put, grace is giving what isn't deserved. And God was not only giving this rebellious, this quarreling, this disrespectful, this self-entitled group of people life-sustaining water from a rock. He was daily giving them his daily presence and love and attention, leading them to the land that he had promised their father Abraham hundreds of years before. The same is true for you and me. We grumble about our circumstances rather than trust and obey when life becomes challenging. We complain that the unpleasant situations that we find ourselves in are the fault of others rather than seeing that they very well might be because of our own sin. And over and over and over again, we fail to remember how God has been abundantly gracious to us in the past and how he promises to continue to be so to his people in the future. We disrespect our leaders, the very ones that God has anointed and placed in authority over us, looking for opportunities to throw them under the bus as we wish. And yet, in spite of our sin and our sinning, God is gracious to an ungrateful people, and he gives them his very own self along with all of his blessings. In his grace, he gives the sinner eyes to see their sin and eyes to see the grace of God that comes from the rock. He truly is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness throughout generations, but who by no means will clear the guilty. So the Israelites, the usual suspects, we've come to expect this from them. But secondly, there's two new arrivals on the scene that join the rebellion, Moses and Aaron. Surprisingly, the Lord doesn't even rebuke the Israelites for their continued rebellion, and he graciously gives them the water that they've requested. But Moses and Aaron now are the ones who the Lord focuses his attention on because of their failure to obey his word, and they are judged for their rebellion. I mean, put yourself in Moses' shoes. We quickly read over the first verse, if you read it, Numbers 20, verse 1. But Moses' sister Miriam has just died. His lifelong friend and sibling, another leader of the Israelites, is buried in the wilderness along with the thousands of others over these past 37 years. Moses again, again, is the victim of a continued rebellion of the Israelites. Everything is his fault. Moses' life, in many ways, must have felt like as if it was falling apart, literally. His loved ones are dying. He's being attacked from every side. And it simply must have been hard to wake up and face whatever the day would bring. The people he's charged with leading proclaim that they would have rather died from the Lord's destruction and judgment than to be on this journey with him as their leader. And the refrain continues, grumbling and complaining that the wilderness lacks these good things like grains and figs and vines and pomegranates and most importantly water. Funny enough, the land of Canaan, which they refused to enter, contains all of those things because it's a land flowing with milk and honey and they brought back the fruit. And Moses must have been banging his head on his desk. What are these people thinking. So how did Moses and Aaron respond? You saw it in verses 6 through 9. If you have your Bibles open, you can look there. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out from the rock and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded them. So far, so good. Moses and Aaron respond to the shocking assembly by going to the Lord and falling on their faces in prayer. 
This is what any good Christian leader should do. When they see the sin of their brothers and sisters, it should overwhelm them with sadness, and they should go to the Lord and beg for him for his help, asking him for what only he can give. Moses seems to be falling on his face a lot throughout his life, interceding for this rebellious people, pleading with God to remember his covenant, and he ends up here again on this day. But this is when Moses and Aaron make a mistake, so pay attention. You see it in verses 10 and 11. Then Moses and Aaron, they gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand. He struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Moses and Aaron, they stumbled in a few ways. These are the ways that I noticed. First, they didn't do what God commanded. First, they did what God did not command. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. First, they did what God did not command. Nowhere did God tell Moses and Aaron to speak to the people. Not a word. Yet they gathered the congregation, and rather than remaining silent and speaking only to the rock, obeying the word of the Lord, they chastised the congregation with the harsh words by saying, Hear now, you rebels. Could you th- Moses is thinking like, you guys are ridiculous, and I'm going to let you have it. Rebels they may be, but God alone is the, uh, is the one who reserves the right to make such declarations, not Moses and his brother Aaron. This congregation was God's chosen possession whom he dearly loved, and Moses and Aaron had no right to address the Lord's people as such, even if that is what they were. God commanded Moses to speak to the rock, and only to the rock, where God was present and from which the Lord would provide the water. Moses should have been thinking back to Exodus 17, after they crossed the Red Sea, and God said, I will go before you on the rock. Strike the rock. Moses should have been expecting the same thing, that God was there. But rather, instead of speaking to the rock, what does he do? Hits it twice with his staff in anger. The cherry on top is the worst, and you may have missed it because I missed it in my first reading. Sadly, Moses declares after gathering the people, this is the cherry on top, the kicker, the worst of all. He says this, shall we, he and his brother Aaron, bring water for you out of this rock? The Lord's command and his word was clear. Grab the staff, presumably Aaron's very own staff that had just budded with these almond buds after Korah's rebellion, proving that Moses and Aaron are God's true leaders Gather the congregation, speak only to the rock in the congregation's presence, and tell it to yield water so that the Lord would be proved holy. And what did Moses do? In anger, he yelled at God's people. In anger, he hit the rock, the Lord himself, two times with the staff. And he took the place of God before the people, declaring that the water that abundantly came flowing out was not the result of the Lord their God, but of, him, but of himself and his brother. And God doesn't let Moses and Aaron off of the hook. We see the consequence for this dreadful mistake. You can see it in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me is holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses and Aaron are sentenced to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief in God and to uphold him as holy among the people of Israel. 
This is interesting because when the Israelites refuse to enter the promised land after the return of the 12 spies, when the Lord issues his judgment, he asks Moses the exact same question. He says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the things that I have done for them, how long will they not believe in me? Because you failed to uphold me as holy, because you failed to believe in me, Moses and Aaron, you too have joined the rebellion and you will not enter the promised land. Moses and Aaron have joined the rebellion by lacking faith in God, and the consequence is the same as it was for the others. No promised land, death in the wilderness. And at the very end of this very same chapter in Numbers, Moses' brother Aaron dies. The Lord's reflection on Moses and Aaron's failure in this scene has perplexed me all week. And most of the commentators aren't helpful. Most of them don't say anything at all. But what does it mean when God says to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me and did not uphold me as holy before the congregation, what does that actually really mean? How did they fail to believe in God and uphold him as holy? Was it that their anger and their frustration with the people had reached a boiling point and they finally just let him have it? Was it robbing God of the glory for providing the life-sustaining water and taking credit for them themselves? Honestly, it's probably a little bit of a both and and not an either or. I mean, Moses must, Moses and Aaron must have been angry. They must have been so frustrated with God's people. They must have looked at the people the same way I do when I read through this narrative and think, are you people insane? What is wrong with you? Stop being so stupid. Haven't you seen everything with your own eyes that the Lord has done for you? Get it together. Like, what is, like, like you're at it again. History is repeating itself. But here's the thing, my friend. This is going to be a rabbit trail. We so often think that seeing is believing, right? Like, oh, if I could have just like, if I could have seen God do a miracle, then I'd really believe that he was true. These are the same people that crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and they did not believe in the Lord. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And this kind of heart um, from a leader of Moses and Aaron is not the kind of heart that God desires. This kind of heart is rebellious. It's unbelieving. When a, Christian's leader, when a Christian leader's heart believes that some people are so far off that they are beyond saving, they have failed to see and believe that no one is beyond the grace and the kindness of God. I have a group of friends who are pastors and youth leaders at large churches in the PCA. We talk We text regularly, we Zoom monthly, we get together yearly, and I get to see them in a few weeks, and I can't wait because it's going to be so good to see some good friends. These are some recurring things that we see in our ministries where we wrongfully harbor a fair amount of unbelief and doubt that God can work for his good and for his glory. Honestly, Honestly and with humility, this is not a time for me to air my grievances, but to show that as a pastor and a leader, I'm not immune to unbelief and rebellion. I'm just one of the many sinners who needs Jesus. I may seem to have it all together. I don't. You can ask my family. You can ask the great people that I work with. Um, None of us have it all together. No one's immune from a rebellious heart and unbelief that God loves a crazy, sinful people. You know when you date someone and they break up with you, you're like, it's not really about you. It's it's like, it's not about you. I mean that seriously. This This list is not about you. It's about me. So this is what I've seen. This is what causes unrighteous anger in a pastor's heart. In my friends' hearts, we've seen that people are not showing up to church like they had been before COVID. 
We see that sports dominate so many of our kids' lives and that these same sports that many of them will never play a single day after graduating from high school have kept them out of church for much or all of their young lives and possibly even forever. We see that parents send their kids to Sunday school or to youth group, but rarely, if ever, come to corporate worship as a family. We see that people consistently only show up to church whenever they have a task to complete or a meeting, or a vi- uh, or a meeting to go to or a visual upfront role to play in a service or a class. We see a lopsided amount of ener- emotional energy of leaders is spent dealing with the shocking sin of unrepentant people who call themselves Christians rather than encouraging people who want to walk with and grow closer to and love Jesus their Lord. We see that so much of church has become what can I get out of this rather than where can I go and serve even if it's somewhere where I honestly wouldn't go. My friends and I, along with probably every other Christian leader, are tempted to believe that God can't work in any or all of these messes. It gets really bad when, like Moses, your leaders take things into their own hands and they wrongly believe that they are the distributors of God's grace and that they are the ones who meet the needs of God's beloved people rather than the Lord God himself. We, too, fail to fall on our faces in prayer, asking for the Lord to do what only he can do. We fail to remain obedient to the task of speaking only God's word, nothing more and nothing less. And rather, we sometimes offer our very own sin-tainted commentary on the less-than-ideal situations that we see popping up everywhere in and around Christ's church. We're guilty like Moses. We're guilty like Aaron of unrighteous anger of fostering a heart of self-righteousness that incorrectly believes the lie that we are far better off and more loved than the grumblers and the complainers whose sin is on full display in the church and on social media. And here's the thing. There's good news in our passage tonight, if you have eyes to see it. The good news of the gospel is this, is that there's one final, final character on display in our passage, a cameo, you could say, although he's disguised and he's easily missed, but he's been there all along. He's the one character who can cure a rebellious heart, the rock himself, not Dwayne Johnson, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, I just, as I was writing that, I was like, sorry, that was, uh, anyways, should have struck it. Um, Anyways, Jesus, the eternal son of God, has been with his people in the wilderness all along, every step of the way. Jesus, the eternal son of God, has been with his people in the wilderness all along, every step of the way. You can flip later tonight, and you can read, actually, I'm going to read it for you. The Apostle Paul makes a shocking claim in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, about people who are testing the Lord. Um, and he says that Jesus is the rock from whom the waters flowed in the wilderness, the waters of Meribah, quarreling, grumbling. Jesus is the one who, from which the waters flowed. This is what Paul says. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, And they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven. And they all drank the same spiritual drink from this rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ himself. Jesus not only was the one who stood on the rock and was struck before the congregation as they began their wilderness journey, leaving Egypt, as their wilderness journey is now winding down, He's been, along, he's been with them all along the entire way, and he's struck again. Jesus had been struck not only by unrighteous sinners who grumbled and who complained and who put God to the test, but also by the self-righteous doubters, the God-appointed leaders themselves, 
who feel as if they are pretty good on their own, and the graces the people receive are from their own hands rather than from the Lord's. Not only was Jesus struck, but the blessings and the daily graces that were shown to this rebellious people were coming directly from the hands of Jesus himself all along. The same is true for you and me today, friends. We rebel. We grumble. We complain. For some of us, our sin is ever before us. Some of us, we look around and we feel pretty good in comparison to others. We get angry at, at, um, at the sin of those people who are doing those bad things. How could they do that? We shake our heads in disgust and disdain. And all of us, the unrighteous and the self-righteous, we all have rebelled against God. We all have struck the rock, the Lord Jesus himself. And yet he provides for us what we don't deserve. He lavishes us with his loving care throughout our whole lives. For the believer, the most satisfying taste is the water of salvation that flows from Jesus Christ himself. In John 7, we'll get there on Sunday mornings. We're making our way there. We read this. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me who drink, and come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me will receive rivers of living water, which will flow from my heart. Jesus says that he is the source of water that wells up to eternal life. He is the rock. In the last chapter of the Bible, which we often don't read, um, there's this picture of the new heavens and the new earth. We're given a picture of a river, the river of the water of life. And you know what it's doing? It's flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And it's flowing out into the city, bringing refreshment without end. It's only from Jesus that we can really know and see and touch and taste the amazing grace of God for us, his wayward and grumbling people. The law that was delivered through Moses only showed us our sin and our sinning. Its demands were impossible to keep. But from Jesus, our Savior and Lord, the rock of our salvation, for those who believe in his name, we receive grace upon grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you love your people. We're thankful for Jesus, who's been with us all along the way, meeting our needs, giving us his grace, giving us what we don't deserve, giving us his love and his affection and his kindness. We're, thank, we're thankful for the living water that we, have, that we have tasted from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the rock which we have struck um, who has declared guilty on our behalf, who stood in our place and, and bore the judgment. Lord, we are thankful um, for him. Lord, we pray that as we leave this place, um, that, that we would honor you with how we live, that we'd be people who were quick to see through Holy Spirit kinds of eyes our own sin and our own sinning, whatever it may be, that we would know that we have Jesus, the rock of our salvation. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.